Good morning. <laughs> that was a little bit weak. Good morning. That's getting better. Good morning. That's almost there. Good morning. <laughs> Sincerely, it's always a delight to be here in the class with you. I cannot tell you how much I mean by that, how grateful we are for the support the class has given to us, and also you as individuals. We have prayed for years that God would do something of such a magnitude only he could explain it. So he would get all the credit and the glory, and God has done just that, and we'll all be grateful for what you have done. Uh, every time I've spoken here, I've spoken with a great deal of passion and burden, and I checked my records, and the last time I spoke here was in March of 2019, and the year before that was in March of 2018, and so that means on the average, it takes a marathon class one to two years to recover from my message, <laughs> and so don't say I did not warn you, but if you, I hope you have the handout in front of you, four things every Christian should do with the gospel. If you don't have this handout, will you raise your hand so they can get it to you because you will need it to follow me. If you got them and you come in, they were free. They're now five dollars. But if... <laughs> If you simply raise your hand and they'll get those to you because you will need them in order to follow me. Wow, some of the men are even collecting the $5. <laughs> Just raise your hand and we'll get one of these to you. They're also giving you the handout for the one, one this presentation will be helpful to you. But for mine, you need the one that says four things every Christian should do with the gospel. Anyone else need the handout four things every Christian should do with the gospel? I think somebody in the back there. Oh, Maxine, you didn't get one. Maxine did not get one. Okay, I think we're all together. Every single one of us know it. Not one of us would deny it, and all of us would agree. You can have the most powerful instrument on the face of the earth, but it's only effective if you know how to use it. Now, let me give you some examples, two of which you can identify with, and one of which you don't think enough about. First of all, take the subject of money. The beautiful thing about money is twofold. First of all, the color does not clash with anything you're wearing. And secondly, you can have anything you want instead of wanting something you don't have. And the, but the thing with money is, it's only effective if you know how to use it. Some time ago, there was a couple that won the $34 million lottery, but they did not know how to use the power of money. And so the marriage resulted in divorce, and then he died of an alcohol-related illness, and she died in a home that she bought with the money five years earlier as a very lonely person. And the fact is, money is a punishment, but only effective if you know how to use it. That late singer, Sophia Tucker, one time made the comment, I've been poor and I've been rich, and rich is definitely better. <laughs> but the fact is, it's only powerful if you know how to use it. Or take a second subject, the mind, M-I-N-D. Will Rogers one time made the comment, the most powerful space on earth is not the space beyond the earth, it's the space between our ears. But that mind is only effective if you know how to use it. But if you know how to use it, it can get you just about anything you want. Reader Digest told about a man who walked into a department store with a pair of pants. And he said, I would like to have these altered. She said, do you have a receipt? He said, no, I don't. She said, we cannot order them without a receipt. 
He said, then may I return them? She said, yes, you can return them without receipt, but we cannot alter it without receipt. And so he handed her the pants and she handed her the money. Then he looked at her and he said, no, I'd like to buy that pair of pants. She could not figure out what in the world he was doing, but she gave him the pants and he gave her the money. Then he said, may I have a receipt? She then gave a receipt, and then he said, I'd like to have them altered. <laughs> and the fact is, the mind is powerful if you know how to use it. But take the one we don't think enough about is, and that is the tongue. One of the most powerful instruments there is, is the one behind your teeth. But it's only effective if you know how to use it. The mind can start a war, it can stop a war. It can get a person the best job they've ever had, or cause them to lose the best job they've ever had. It can cause a person alongside of you to be your best friend. It can cause a person alongside of you to be your worst enemy. It can bring two people together in marriage. It can drive them apart in divorce. But the mind is only effective if you know how to use it. And you have to know how to control it instead of it controlling you. Some time ago, a very humorous incident happened in an auditorium where 4,000 people were gathered for a particular conference. The speaker was slow in getting into his opening remarks, and the engineer who operated his microphone was so irritated how long it was taking to get into his opening remarks. And the engineer, not realizing his own microphone was turned on, said, well, go ahead, you old goat. But since he did not realize his microphone was turned on, what he said, he said not only to himself, but to the speaker and to an audience of 4,000 people. And you can imagine the tension that went through the audience that was unresolved when the speaker and the audience both joined in. But the fact is, you can have the most powerful instrument on the face of the earth, but it's only effective if you know how to use it. And you might be saying, but Larry, what are you getting at? The thing I'm getting at is you have the most powerful instrument in your hands every single day, and it's called the gospel. Congratulations, because the gospel in five seconds, your destiny would change from hell to heaven, and you can live as a person prepared to die, then die as a person prepared to live. And it's so powerful, it can change the life of every single person you contact and there's no more powerful instrument you have in your hands every single day is the gospel. And that's why the Bible calls it the power of God unto salvation. But the New Testament makes it clear there are four things you ought to do with the gospel every day. And these are so simple and so obvious. We need what Winston Churchill one time called the genius for recognizing the obvious. And I'm the type of person I love anything that's filled with common sense and anything that's so obvious. That's why I love the story of the school teacher who said to her students, who can tell me what happened in 1809? A sharp boy stood up, he said, Abraham Lincoln was born. She said, congratulations, you're right. She said, now who can tell me what happened in 1812? He stood up again and said, he had his third birthday. <laughs> and I love that kind of common sense. And the fact is, the New Testament gives us four common sense things we ought to do with the gospel every day. Here they are. Let's go through them. First of all, the Bible says, define it. And you might say, well, why define it? Because if you walk into any given church and ask them the question, what's the gospel? I promise you, less than 10% can tell you. And before we do anything else, we have to be able to define it. Now, the interesting thing is, that's not hard to do. 
because God's already done it for us. We just haven't looked at the definition closely enough. And we're kind of like the Sunday school class where a teacher said to her pupils, now can anyone give me one of the Ten Commandments only contain four words? And one boy who had not looked at the Bible carefully enough said, keep off the grass. <laughs> and the fact is, we sometimes have not looked at that definition closely enough. And you notice in your notes, God's given us that definition there in 1 Corinthians 15. Because he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now, the word for, F-O-R, means instead of or on behalf of. In other words, Christ died on behalf of our sins. Had he not died, you would have. He died in your place. He was your substitute. Of all the aircraft collisions I have ever heard of, the one that has always impacted me the most was one a lot of people didn't even know it happened, or by this time they've forgotten, because it was back in 1987 when Northwest Flight 225 took off from the Detroit airport and crashed, killing 155 people. But the reason it always stuck out in my mind is there is one four-year-old girl from Tempe, Arizona that survived the crash, the only one. And the reason was, as the plane was going down, the mother unbuckled her seatbelt, got down in front of that four-year-old daughter of hers, wrapped her body and clothing around her, and when the plane crashed, she died in her place. She saved her by dying for her. She died in her place. She was her substitute. Then 1 Corinthians 15 says, according to the scriptures. That's exactly what Isaiah, who spoke 700 orders, said would happen. He'll be wounded for your transgressions. He'll be bruised for your iniquities. First verb is, Christ died. Then he said, and that he was buried. His burial is proof that he died. You don't bury live people, you bury people who've died. He said he died, the proof is buried. Then he says, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Psalm 1610 predicted his empty tomb when it said, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you suffer your holy one to see corruptions. So the third verb is, he rose. And then he says, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. A man by the name of J. N. D. Anderson made the statement, if all the evidence were brought in the courtroom, Jesus Christ would be found guilty of having arisen from the dead. He said he rose, the proof is he was seen. So there's four verbs. Christ died, the proof is buried. He rose, proof is he was seen. So that means the gospel can be defined in ten words. Those ten words are, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. The Bible is 66 books. The gospel is 10 words. Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. I know a family, every time they sit down to dinner, the husband says to the family, what's the gospel? And the family answers, Christ died for sins and rose from dead. I know a pastor, every time he steps in the pulpit, he says to the people, what's the gospel? And the people answer, Christ died for sins and rose from dead. Because they don't want them to ever forget 
how simple the definition of the gospel is, and it's sad how many churches in our country cannot define the gospel, and God puts in 10 words. What's the gospel again? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. But that's not enough, because ask yourself the question, if you were the devil, what is the one message you would want to attack? And the answer is the gospel. And that's why you not only have to define it, the second thing you have to do is defend it. And the second thing you have to do with the gospel is defend it. Now, all of us have time we become angry. The important thing is you got to get angry about the right things. One time, Benjamin Franklin made the statement, anger always has a reason, but very seldom is it a good one. And the fact is, all of us have time to become angry. Got to be careful you become angry about the right thing. I love this story I read recently about a businessman who was flying from Hartford and to Hartford to Connecticut. And the man on the side of them asked him a question. I often ask people, are you going to home or away from home? And the man going to Hartford said, well, I'm going back home because I don't have any clothing. The man was surprised, said, well, I don't have any clothing. He said, well, before I left for my business trip, I had an argument with my wife over something trivial. And when she packed my suitcase, she filled it with newspapers instead of clothing. I don't have any clothing. The moral of the story is, if you argue with your wife, pack your own suitcase. <laughs> and therefore, we have to be careful that we're always getting angry about the right thing. But there's nothing ought to make you angrier than if somebody distorts the gospel. Look what he says there in your notes in Galatians 1.6. I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to differ gospel, which is not another. He means not another of the same kind. It's another of a different kind. That's why he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Here's the situation. Paul came along and preached the gospel of grace. Judaizer came along and said, oh, you need Christ, but you need the commandments, the law, circumcision. And it was not Christ, period. It was Christ plus. And they preached that Christ did not make the down, full payment. He made the down payment. It was a gospel of another kind. And for that reason, he goes on and says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That means let him suffer the judgment of God. Now, for an unsaved person, that could mean that would mean hell. For a saved person who does it, that could mean something so severe as physical death. Let him say, let him suffer the displeasure of God. If anyone preached any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And it's one of the strongest terms that's ever used in the New Testament. Let him suffer the judgment of God. Let him suffer the discipline of God. And that's why once you only have to define it, you also have to defend it. Before I came to Christ, I had a fierce temper. So much so, I remember a day my mother said to me, you better be careful, Larry. That's the thing that makes people murder. I lived in fear that one day I might murder someone. I have an outburst of temper. But when I came to Christ, as my dear wife will tell you, God just took that all away and told me how to just take one day at a time and not get so ticked off if life did not go my way. But the thing I do become angry about and will till the day I die is that somebody distorts the gospel. Because you not only have to define it, you have to defend it.
And there are those today distorting the gospel of Christ. A well-known women speaker says some time ago, and she meant every word of it, a bored Christian is no Christian at all. What she meant by that is, if you're bored, it's because you have never come to Christ. At that point, she changed her terms of the gospel. Because Jesus did not say, he who believes in me and is not bored shall have everlasting life. He says, he who believes in me. A popular men speaker made the comment, you can pray and not be a Christian. I agree. But then he said, you cannot be a Christian and not pray. I totally disagree. How many of you struggle with your prayer life? At that point, she, he changed the terms of the gospel. Because Christ did not say, he who believes in me and prays has everlasting life. It says, he who believes in me. Even during the election last fall, I heard Christians say, you cannot be a member of this or that political party and be a Christian. May Almighty God help us when we reduce the gospel as to whether a person is a Republican or a Democrat. I think God loved disgusting Democrats. <laughs> but I also think he loved repulsive Republicans. <laughs> and I also think he loved irritating independents. <laughs> and the fact is, the gospel had nothing to do with a political party. And if there's ever a day, you better stand up for the gospel is today. Because there are those polluting the gospel. And Paul the Apostle said, let him be accursed. Because the gospel is a serious thing with God. And it better be a serious thing with us. Don't distort the gospel. Defend it. The gospel is ten words. What are they? Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So first of all, define it. And then defend it. But then that's not enough. Because if you define it, you defend it, it's very possible people all around you will still go to hell. Because not only do you have to define it and defend it, the third thing you have to do is declare it. Define it and defend it, and then declare it. Look at that verse there in Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. All of us have the same message to give. You go to Romania, what are the ten words you need to tell people? Christ died for sins and rose from dead. Go to Brazil. What's the ten words you need to tell people? Christ died for sins and rose from dead. Go to Cuba. What's the ten words you need to tell people? Christ died for sins and rose from dead. We have the same message for everyone. And for that reason, we have declared that message. I like the story of the man who was so irritated with all the evil in the world. And one day he yelled out to God, why don't you do something? And God answered, I did. I sent you. <laughs> and the fact is, that's right, God sent us. Because people need to hear the gospel. Regeneration has to come before reformation. There's got to be a change on the inside before there's a change on the outside. And for that reason, declare it to your neighbors. Declare it to people you volunteer with. Declare it in your senior citizen's apartment. Declare it in the sidewalk. Declare it in the supermarket. Declare it in the department store. But declare it, declare it, declare it. Because a message that's untold does not help anyone. And the exciting thing is, you never have to worry about declaring it to the wrong person. As some of you know, I am one avid hunter. So much so, when I proposed my dear wife of 48 years, I asked her three questions in this order. Is it okay if I'm an evangelist? She said yes. I said, is it okay if I'm a, if I'm a hunter? She said yes. 
I said, will you marry me? <laughs> and I asked her three questions in that order because I am one avid hunter. But one time I talked to a woman. I was telling her how excited I was. I had a whole freezer full of deer meat. And I could enjoy deer meat the entire year. And I was so excited. And I even said to her, I'd love to give you some. And when I stopped long enough to give her a chance to say something, she said, oh, there's something I should have told you. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I found out you can talk to the wrong person about deer meat, but you can never talk to the wrong person about Christ. They, every single person needs the gospel and therefore declare it. But even that's not enough. And the reason is because sometimes what we say with our lips is different from what we say with our life. And so therefore, not only do you have to define it, defend it, and declare it, the fourth thing you have to do is decorate it. In other words, make it beautiful. Now, don't misunderstand me. The gospel by itself is beautiful. That's why Romans 10, 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. It doesn't mean their feet are beautiful. It means their feet are beautiful because the message they bring is beautiful. It's a beautiful message. I have a pastor friend of mine who's just a few bricks short of a full load. He's half preacher and half crazy, and I told him that to his face. And one time he got up on a Sunday morning in his pajamas, wanted to go over his message. He needed something from his study. So he walked down the sidewalk barefoot in his pajamas to his study that was just next door, got what he needed, then walked home barefoot in his pajamas. On the way home, one of his members saw him walking barefoot up the street, and Sam noted said, how beautiful are the feet of those <laughs> that spread the gospel of peace. And he deserved every bit of that. But the fact is, it says their feet are beautiful because the message they bring are beautiful. But sometimes the fact is, our life speaks so loudly that people cannot hear what we're saying with our lips. And that's why you ought to attract others to the beauty of the gospel by attracting them to the beauty of your life. Now, that's why he says what he does in Titus 2, 11 to 12. Notice it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that. Teaching us that means schoolmaster. It goes back to pedagogue. On the way to school, a schoolmaster would go along with the students and teach them moral lessons, never let them out of his sight. The Bible is saying the grace of God is our schoolmaster. The grace that saves us is the grace that trains us. And because God wants us to live the holiest life we can for him, the grace of God will train you in two areas. First of all, what not to do, and secondly, what to do. Notice he first of all addressed what not to do. He says in verse 11, denying ungodliness. That means anything ungodly. Thoughts, words, actions, attitude, dismiss it. Then he says, worldly lust. That means a craving desire for something forbidden. It might be an area of sex when a person lets his passion control him, instead of he controlling his passion. It might be an area of pleasure when a person lives for the here and now instead of the hereafter. It might be a craving desire for something else. But he says, just dismiss any time a craving desire for something forbidden, and any kind of worldly lust, get it out of your life. So he said, dismiss any kind of ungodliness, dismiss any kind of worldly lust. Then part of what makes your life attractive, though, 
is not what you take out of your life, it's what you put in. So notice he says that we should live, he says, soberly. That means self-control. You control your appetites, don't let them control you. Live a self-controlled life. Someone had defined self-control as the ability to break a chocolate bar into four pieces and only eat one piece. <laughs> but self-control. Then he says righteously. That means anything righteous, good or bright. Someone had defined living righteously as living good when nobody is looking. Because if you live good when nobody is looking, you live good when everybody is looking. Live righteously. Then he says godly. That means with a reverence and respect from him, for him. Every time you jump out of bed till you jump in, you all live every moment with reverence and respect for him. And he said, live soberly, righteously, and godly. But the point is, decorate the gospel. Because if you want someone to see what God can do in their life, you got to show them what God's done in your life. And so decorate the gospel. And it's interesting to me, in New Testament, he makes it so clear those are the four things everyone should do with the gospel. Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. You're doing some volunteer work? Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. You're doing some type of service for any kind of missionary organization? Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. They'll talking to your neighbor? Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. You're still in the workforce? Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. What are the four things every Christian ought to do with the gospel? What are they? Define it, defend it, declare it, decorate it. What are the four things every believer should do with the gospel? Define it, defend it, declare it, decorate it. What are the four things every believer should do with the gospel? Define it, defend it, declare it, de decorate it. If my good friend Rex Eatman were to ask you next week, what did Larry explain were the four things every Christian ought to do with the gospel? What would you tell him? Define it, defend it, declare it, decorate it. If my good friend Dean Newman were to ask you two weeks from now, what are the four things every Christian ought to do with the gospel? What would you tell him? Define it, defend it, declare it, decorate it. If my good friend Barbara Williams were to ask you three weeks from now, what are the four things every Christian ought to do with the gospel? What would you tell her? Define it, defend it, declare it, decorate it. If my good friend Taylor Gardner were to ask you four weeks from now, what are the four things every Christian ought to do with God? What would you tell him? Define it, defend it, declare it, decorate. Buck your seatbelts, I've got 50 good friends in this class. <laughs> but the point is, well, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of your own reward when you stand before Christ, that is more important in 2021 than it's ever been before because we're losing it even in our churches. Say it clearly. The fourth thing you do with the gospel, define it, defend it, declare it, decorate it. Some years ago, I spoke in Siberia. And while there, I stayed with a man as who was my host, of course. And before coming to Christ, he got involved with the wrong kind of people and ended up in jail. While he was in jail, one of his friends so hated him, he decided to kill him. And he hired a man to kill my host. He met with the hired killer, agreed on a price. He said, now once you kill him, come, I'll give you the money. Well, the hired killer procrastinated. 
He said, I've got to get that done, but I've got so much on my plate, I just haven't been able to do it. He treated that lightly. Well, it so happened, somebody shared Christ with my host in jail. He came to know the Lord and was later dismissed. At the same time, 30 miles away, somebody was sharing Christ with the hair killer, and the hair killer came to Christ. A missionary association decided they would start a school to train local men in the area how to be effective pastors. Not knowing anything about these two, but knowing what they had gifted-wise, they decided to train these two men. So these two men, without knowing each other, were sitting in class right next to each other. My host said to former Harry Kilder, what's your name? He gave him his name. The former Harry Kilder said to my friend, what's your name? He gave him his name. And the Harry Kilder looked at him and said, you're the man I was hired to kill before I came to Christ. That's the power of the gospel. It can change your life in five seconds from heaven, hell to heaven. And that's why it's so important for the sake of the lost, sake of Christ, and sake of your own reward. You every day, every week, every year, till you see him face to face, do four things with the gospel. They are loudly and clearly. Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. All God's people ought to say, Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the fact that you allowed us to do that. Why you would ever let us do that, we have no earthly idea. But we pray, Lord. But we thank you, Lord, you've allowed us to do that. Help us to be fervent, zealous, with excitement. Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this class who does not know for sure if they were to die, they'd go to heaven. Even this afternoon, they get down their knees before you and such a, just say, Jesus, you died for me. You rose again. I'm trusting you to save me. Thank you for the for your free gift of eternal life, knowing wherever they are, that you would give them the free gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray as we resolve our time together this morning that those who don't know you have no idea who they're missing might be brought to you. And if that happens, it'll be worth it all. Because after all, the only thing we can take with us to heaven is a friend. So help us by your grace. Define it, defend it, declare it, and decorate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.